pastoral world, you, you would call a one-off Sunday, one of those standalone sermons. Um, next Sunday, we're going to dive into a five-week vision casting series that will carry us through the middle of September, uh, a series in which we'll spend time unpacking the mission, vision, and values of our church, as well as our strategy, our ground game for how to go about those things in our context. And, and then from there, we're going to move into a study of the book of Hebrews that will carry us all the way to Easter Sunday. And so this morning... I want to use this one-off Sunday, so to speak, purposefully to set the stage for that series to come in the book of Hebrews. We've already been doing that this summer as we've taken a look at 10 particular psalms that the author of Hebrews references in his writing. And so if you missed uh, that summer series, I'd encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast, connect the dots a little bit there. Um, But this morning, what I want to do is I want to take us to a little bit of a higher altitude and see how... The book of Hebrews fits into the bigger story, so to speak, and also see not only what's at stake as we dive into that book of the Bible a few weeks from now, but what's at stake as you dive into the Bible tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and so forth and so on. And I want to do that by spending a little bit of time this morning in Luke chapter 24. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke 24. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. You can grab that Bible. That Bible's yours. Take it home if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's a little more difficult to understand. As you're opening up, um, let me just mention Luke 24 is a pretty incredible chapter of the Bible. Um, it, It is completely revolutionized the way I open the Bible, the way I read the Bible. Not only does it contain the story of Jesus' resurrection, but it also brings us face-to-face with the ultimate, what would Jesus do, right? You remember the bracelets. Some of you guys wore those bracelets like it was your job. Um, You know, your friends thinking about making poor decisions in life, and and you're like, WWJD, bro, you know. Um, Here here in Luke 24, you, you get the ultimate WWJD. You get a literal, what would Jesus do in this chapter of the Bible? We'll get there in a moment, but Uh, Picking up the story uh, in verse 13, it says this. It says, that very day, that is the day of Jesus' resurrection, two of them, two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So this is the famous walk to Emmaus. And they were, verse 14, talking with each other about all these things that had happened, namely Jesus' trial, the mocking and flogging, the public execution of Jesus, the burial of of Jesus in the tomb gifted to him by Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 15 says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So, So they have no idea that the resurrected Jesus has just decided to join them on their leisurely stroll. Can you imagine that? Goes on to say, verse 17, And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, it's kind of a big deal, Jesus. Imagine living in New York around the time that 9-11 happened, and a few days after the terror attack, a fellow New Yorker approaches you and says, Hey, uh, what, what happened with the Twin Towers? Like, those, those guys were standing a few days ago, and they're not standing anymore. Like, are, are you serious right now? Everybody's talking about it. It's on the front page of the Jerusalem Daily Times. Are you seriously the only person in town who has no idea of what's happened here in recent days? 
I love what Jesus says in verse 19. And he said to them, what things? What things? Jesus is, is so messing around with these guys. It's a teaching moment for them, and they have no clue as to what's going on. And he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to free us from Roman oppression, the one to overthrow Roman rule. It goes on to say in verse 21, Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, namely Peter and John, and found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. So these men are saddened. They're, they're devastated. This Jesus in whom they had put their hope has been crucified at the hands of the very ones he was expected to overthrow. Now listen to Jesus' response. This is, this is one of the most profound statements to come out of Jesus' mouth in all of the Gospels. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So picture this scene. Jesus enrolls these two guys in a seminary course on the spot, basically. They're about to get credit hours in survey of the Old Testament, biblical theology, systematic theology, hermeneutics, which is just a big nerdy word that means Bible interpretation. I mean, you talk about an equipped gathering. Everybody's signing up for that one, right? Jesus is teaching in himself. He's going to be there. I'm down, right? Can you imagine that? Here it is. The, the ultimate, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he had a Bible in hand? How would Jesus read his Bible? And the answer, according to Luke 24, is simple. If Jesus had a Bible in hand, Jesus would look for Jesus. Let me say that again. If Jesus had a Bible in hand, Jesus would look for Jesus. Again, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Moses and all the prophets. That's, that's comprehensive Old Testament language. But just in case that's not convincing enough, verse 27 goes on to say, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures. In Jesus' day, that phrase meant in all of the Old Testament. And so Jesus makes a declaration here to a couple of devastated disciples on a road to Emmaus that the Old Testament is about Jesus. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus says the following words to the Jews who are persecuting him in John chapter 5, verse 46. He says, But if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote of me, Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? That Moses in his writings wrote of Jesus. Jesus is the subject matter of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Or how about the words of the Apostle Paul as he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Paul says this, he says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. 
And what is it that the prophets and Moses said would come to pass? That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light uh, to our people and to the Gentiles. That, That here the Apostle Paul verifies that the Old Testament writings are about the suffering and subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. One final example, coming back to Luke 24. If you fast forward the story to verse 44, you get these words from Jesus to his disciples. He says this. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Not only does Jesus mention three major literary categories in the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, but again, you see the language of the scriptures, which in Jesus' day was the Old Testament in its fullness. Ian Duguid, a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, professor of Old Testament, says this. He says, The Old Testament is not primarily a book about ancient history or culture, though it contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Centrally, the Old Testament is a book about Christ, and more specifically, about his sufferings and the glories that will follow. That is, it is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. It's really quite unbelievable if you think about it. The the Bible is incredibly diverse, unbelievably diverse. You have 66 books written over the course of nearly 2,000 years by roughly 40 human authors. The Bible was written by kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, scholars, written in two main languages, both Greek and Hebrew, with a a little Aramaic sprinkled in for good measure, made up of historical narratives, songs, poetry, letters, sermons, architectural specifications, population statistics, genealogies, which I know you love to read when you open your Bible, and, and on and on we could go. And yet this This glorious, diverse book tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero, the one who binds the entire thing together. And here in Luke 24, Jesus gives us permission to look for him throughout the entire story. And not just permission. Uh, Richard Belcher, one of my former professors, says this about Luke 24. He says, Jesus himself gives the divine authorization for reading all the Old Testament in reference to him. And so the million-dollar question, I think, this morning is this. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? I mean, how, how are we to look for Jesus when we open our Old Testament? He's really easy to see in the New Testament, right? He's in the Gospels. He's the main character. He's the subject matter of all of Paul's letters, Peter, John, and on and on we could go. But how are we to look for Jesus when we open our Old Testament? I mean, is, is Jesus teaching in Luke 24 that he's explicitly in every single verse of the Old Testament? I don't... I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching, nor do most biblical scholars. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just throw out a few ways that maybe you'll find helpful. And then we'll come back to Luke 24 and we'll talk about why any of this matters. What's at stake here? And so here we go. A few ways to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's definitely a start. Number one, and this is probably the most common way, prophecies. Old Testament predictions which find their fulfillment in Jesus. So that Genesis 3.15 declares that an offspring of Eve would come and heroically crush the serpent Satan's head. Jesus 
fulfilled that promise. Isaiah 7.14 declares that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2 declares that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Malachi 3.1 declares that the Messiah would have his way prepared by a forerunner. We know that John the Baptist, in fact, prepared the way of the Lord, as we see in the Gospels. Isaiah 53 declares that the Messiah would take on human flesh and suffer on behalf of sinners. Zechariah 9.9 declares that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 11 declares that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver that would not be returned, but rather would go to a potter. All right, this is crazy, people. Remember Judas in remorse tried to return the 30 pieces of silver that he betrayed Jesus for, but the chief priest would not accept them. So Judas threw them on the floor of the temple and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest then took the money and bought the field of a potter to bury strangers in. Psalm 22, 16 declares that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and feet. When Psalm 22 was written, crucifixion had not yet been invented by the Persians. These are just a, a handful of the many Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. When we open our Old Testament, we can, with, with great anticipation, look for prediction, predictions of the hero's coming, of Jesus' coming to rescue us. Secondly, another way we can look for Jesus in the Old Testament is through Christophanies, which just simply means Old Testament pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. Um, Jacob's wrestling with the Lord in Genesis 32 the burning bush episode in Exodus 3. The fourth man in that fiery furnace was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in Daniel 3. The prophet Isaiah's calling into ministry in Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees the Lord seated high and exalted on his throne. And he declares, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Many of you uh, may have encountered that passage before. If you're skeptical of all the other ones I've thrown out there, John 12, 41 tells us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. That, that even if you're less than willing to affirm some of these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus, one thing we can say is that every one of those episodes is a declaration of God with his people. Emmanuel, God with us, which most certainly points to Jesus. Another way to look for him is through types, Old Testament people, events, and institutions that foreshadow the person and work of Jesus we talk about this all the time around here, that Jesus is the greater Adam. He's the last Adam, as Paul makes clear in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Then in Genesis, we're told that Adam failed his test in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against God. Yet in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus passed his test in the Garden of Gethsemane and obeyed God perfectly. That Jesus is the greater Abel. Abel was slain by his brother Cain, and his blood cries out for justice. Yet Jesus was slain, and his innocent blood cries out for mercy, making atonement for our sins. That Jesus is the greater Abraham. Abraham was called to leave his home and go to a place where he'd become the father of many nations. Jesus left his home and entered into the slums of human history to redeem the nations. That Jesus is the greater Isaac. Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, carried the wood for the altar on his back up the hill to the place where he would be sacrificed. Yet at the last minute, God provided a ram and a thicket as a substitute so that Isaac might live. And yet Jesus, the one and only son, not of Abraham, but of God, carried a piece of wood on his back, namely a cross, up the hill of Golgotha to the place where he would be sacrificed. Yet God did not provide a substitute, but rather Jesus is our substitute bearing our sins and dying in our place so that we might bear his righteousness and live. Jesus is the greater Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold him and betrayed him and uses his power to rescue them. 
Jesus is the greater Moses who functions as the mediator between God and his people. He establishes a a covenant not with tablets of stone but with his very own blood. Jesus is the greater Job, the righteous sufferer whose friends abandoned him when he needed them, who was tormented by Satan so that God might be glorified. Jesus is the greater Boaz. That's crazy. Even Boaz? Boaz redeemed Ruth, bringing unwanted foreigners into God's community. Jesus redeemed us, bringing wayward pagan Gentiles into God's family. Jesus is the greater Esther. Esther risked losing the throne and ultimately her life. Jesus willingly gave up his throne and ultimately his life for us. Jesus is the greater David, slaying the greater giants of Satan, sin, and death. The eternal king whose kingdom shall never end. Jesus is the greater Hosea. Hosea married a prostitute who was unfaithful to him. Jesus likewise took a bride for himself, namely you and me, the church. And he is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jonah remained in the belly of the great fish for three days. Jesus remained in the belly of the earth for three days before rising in victory over sin and death. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, innocent, without blemish or spots, slain so that the angel of death might pass over you and me. He's the true prophet. The Old Testament prophets declared, thus says the Lord. Jesus declared, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, I am the Lord. Jesus is the true priest. The Old Testament priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people, but not without offering sacrifices for their own sins first. Jesus, the sinless one, didn't have to do that because he was sinless and thus was able to offer himself as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He's the true king. Throughout the, the Bible, we see kings come and go over and over and over again. Yet Jesus is the king of kings whose kingdom shall never end. He's the true tabernacle. The true temple, shepherd, bread, vine, light, on and on. We could go. We could just keep on talking about this and miss lunch. Here's where the book of Hebrews comes into play. When we open up that book of the Bible together as a church weeks from now, we're going to see the glory of Christ tattooed all over the pages of the Old Testament. See, the author of Hebrews took Luke 24 very seriously. He takes us back in time on a warp speed tour of the Old Testament and shows how it all points to Jesus. We'll come back around in just a couple minutes to the connecting of the dots to the Hebrew series again. But but for now, let's keep going. A few more ways to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, One, promises. If what Paul says is true, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20. If that's true then every promise we come across in the Old Testament should cause us to look to Jesus for our hope and its fulfillment. And then there are laws. Every law we encounter in the Old Testament should remind us of our deep need for the perfect, obedient, law-keeping Christ. And then lastly, theology. And I'd argue both systematic and biblical. Let me explain what I mean by that. Systematic theology gives us the pillars of Christian doctrine. So you pick up any systematic theology book you're going to encounter, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of salvation, and and on and on we could go. And every one of those pillars points us to Jesus. Think about it. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, according to the scriptures, we're told that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. How about the doctrine of angelic beings? Well, we know that angels minister to Christ and sing of his glory. The doctrine of man, you and I, as human beings, were made in the image of and are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. The doctrine of demonic beings, Christ is our victory over the demonic powers of evil. 
The doctrine of sin. Christ is our sin-bearing Savior who gives hope to the vilest of sinners. The doctrine of salvation. There is no salvation apart from the person and work of Jesus. The doctrine of the church. There is no body without the head who is Christ. And the doctrine of even the end times. It is Christ who will return to make everything sad untrue one day. Every systematic theological concept that you come across in the Bible ultimately points to Jesus. And then there's the, the biblical theological side for those who, who think more in terms of story, of narrative. That the Bible is a story with four main acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And all four acts of that divine drama have Jesus as their hero. I wish we had more time to get into detail here. If you missed the, the series that we went through about a year ago entitled The Story, you should go back and listen to that. It, it, it does far more due diligence in unpacking this point than I could ever do this morning. But suffice it to say that the Bible teaches that Jesus was part of the creation story. John tells us that nothing was made that was created apart from Jesus. That Jesus set the very stage that he would enter in order to die in the place of sinners. That's crazy. Not just creation, the fall. Jesus was part of the story of the fall of man. Not, not in the sense that he participated in man's rebellion, but in the sense that he was promised in the wake of man's rebellion, Genesis 3.15, the hero who would come and ultimately crush the serpent's head, rescuing his people from the domain of darkness, creation, fall, Redemption. Jesus is part of the story of redemption. It's Jesus uh, who was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and, and who fulfills all of those promises in the new. He's the one who has come to make a way where there is no way. And lastly, he's a part of the act of restoration in this glorious divine drama. It's Jesus who will one day return to set all things right. Every good fairy tale has a king and a kingdom and a damsel in distress. And Jesus is the king in this real-life fairy tale from start to finish. It's really quite unbelievable. This glorious, diverse book that we call the Bible tells one overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero, the one who binds the entire story together. And so maybe you're asking yourself at this point, why does all this matter? I mean, why, why spend so much time talking about this stuff. Why, why does it matter that we bring this interpretive lens to our reading of the scriptures? Why is it so critical that we embrace this way of reading our Bibles? Well, for one, it, it guards us from moralizing the scriptures. It guards us from viewing the characters that we encounter in scripture in the past as the ultimate heroes of the past. So we, we could hold all the heroes of the faith under a microscope and prove that there's only one true perfect hero. I mean, even just considering those mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, as, as we often refer to it, we know that Abraham lied twice. We know that Noah, after the flood, planted a vineyard and got drunk off the wine. That just might be the most premeditated sin in all of human history, by the way. Sarah laughed at God. Isaac lied. Jacob deceived. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Religion says there are good guys and bad guys, so be like the good guys and God will love you. The gospel says there are no good guys and bad guys. Rather, there are bad guys and Jesus, the only good guy in all of human history who came to save bad guys like you and me. In other words, not only does this approach to Scripture guard us from viewing biblical characters as the ultimate heroes of the past, but it also guards us from viewing ourselves as the ultimate heroes of the present. 
based on our own moralistic efforts or religious pedigree. That it, it's not ultimately about you and me, this story, and what we do or don't do. It's ultimately about Jesus and what he's done. That, that neither you nor I nor any biblical character can stand on the pedestal of human history as its hero. We weren't made for that. Only Jesus can handle the weight of, of that heroism. But I want to I wanna close by showing you another reason that I think we should look for Jesus in all of Scripture. A reason found by returning to the story of Luke 24. Picking up where we left off in verse 28. It says this. So they, the two disciples and Jesus, drew near to the village to which they were going. And he, Jesus, acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the, the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. Remember, they, they had not recognized him before. And he vanished from their sight. Verse 32. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Remember, going back to verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That, that the result of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament was the burning of human hearts. If ever there was an argument that the Old Testament is not wasted space, all the jokes about Leviticus are terrible. Because the burning of human hearts is at stake with that book of the Bible just as much as the other 65. And so... Let me ask you a question. Does your heart burn for Jesus? If not, do you, do you want that? And if so, do you, do you want your heart to be set even more ablaze for Jesus? Perhaps you've even experienced that in the, in the last few, few minutes as we've gone on a warp speed tour of Christ in all the scriptures. I don't know what God's doing in our midst right now. But I would say this, if you want your heart set ablaze for Christ... Read the Old Testament and look for him. And read the, the New Testament and look for him. Some, some have asked me, Man, aren't, aren't you scared of getting your interpretation wrong? To which I've responded, if Jesus tells me to look for Jesus when I open my Old Testament, I would ra rather err on the side of looking for him too much than trying to explain him away. I'd rather hold that before him one day. But, but listen, here, here's the deal. What I'm ultimately concerned about is not getting my interpretation of the scriptures wrong, though that is important, critically important. What I'm ultimately concerned about is having a heart that doesn't burn for Jesus. It's in seeing Jesus that our hearts are set ablaze, and he's there in the scriptures from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22 and everywhere in between. And so when we open up the book of Hebrews together as a church a few weeks from now, that's what we're after. Hearts set ablaze with passion for Jesus Christ. If all that we've talked about this morning is uncharted territory for you, please stick around. Hebrews is a, a fantastic book of the Bible um, to help bring all these pieces together to show that the Bible does truly tell this, this one overarching story of redemption, to show that Jesus is truly the, the hero who binds the entire thing together. And if all that we've talked about this morning is not uncharted territory for you. I hope that you'll stick around because you're encouraged about where we're going as a church, that you're excited about that series. It's going to be unbelievable. It's one of, one of the most glorious layouts of the biblical narrative in its fullness, the book of Hebrews is. 
And so my prayer is that God would use our time in that book of the Bible weeks from now to remove the residual sleep from our eyes and set our hearts ablaze with love for Jesus Christ.